0: Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had a great time talking with Carl Yamamoto about his brand new book, Vision and Violence, Lama Shang and the Politics of Charisma in 12th Century Tibet. That was published with Brill in 2012. Now, this is a book that's going to be of obvious interest and obvious import to anybody working in Tibetan studies, the history of Tibet, um, the history or study of Buddhism, or anybody interested in reading about those issues. But in addition to that, Um, It's a book that deals with the kinds of concepts and kinds of uh, practices that go into um, making the story and the history that Yamamoto's telling um, that are relevant to many other fields and many other people who may not be primarily interested in Tibetan studies or Buddhist studies um, may find a lot to learn in this book as a result. Among the different kinds of issues that um, Yamamoto brings to bear here are issues of how to think about lineage and family in history, issues of genre and how how we might think more creatively about what that means and what that looked like in the context of Tibetan history, issues of charisma and sort of how all of these kinds of factors, including others, can be woven together into a story about the integration of a whole from fragments. So at the base, this is a story about, on many, many levels, how a whole is created through uh, fragmentary beginnings uh, fragments. It's very, very interesting. Um, it's, it's really kind of surprisingly integrated in a very wide range of fields. And as you'll see in the course of the interview, Um, This is in in no doubt based, at least in part, on the very unusual and sort of really refreshing and transdisciplinary background of the author. It was a great um, hour talking with him, and I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the book as well. Hello, Carl. Hi. (laughs) We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Carl Yamamoto about his book, Vision and Violence, Lama Zhang and the Politics of Charisma in 12th Century Tibet. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Carl, and thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Carla. and. Um, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Of course, oh, me too. So, Carl, could you start us off um, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you into Tibetan studies and Tibetan history?
1: I was actually a very late starter, and and I got into it in ways that most Tibetan studies people don't. Most of the people I know have you know they travel to Tibet or Nepal or you know to the Tibetan areas of, of India. And they kind of fall in love with Tibetan culture. I actually came from a, a I was originally a philosopher. I, I have my master's in philosophy from Yale and just Western philosophy. I didn't really have that much interest in Asian things. Um, and then I left ABD, I, I left philosophy for a long time. And I started, in the meantime, I became interested in Buddhism. I was living in New York. I started hanging out with with like the various Dharma groups and such. And at the same time, I was thinking I should go back and finish my Ph.D. I'm A, B, D. So as I was sort of researching where I might apply, I, I came to realize I wasn't that interested in, in pursuing a Ph.D. in philosophy anymore. And so I gradually started to think, well, maybe I can pick Buddhist studies. And that's what I did. So I went to University of Virginia mainly because um, – they had a very a broad, diverse program. They had East Asian Buddhism, they had Indian Buddhism, they had Tibetan Buddhism. And I just went in there cold. I, they, they probably don't accept people like that anymore. Um, it's like now you almost have to, have to have your proposal written by the time you apply. But then it was a little bit looser. And so I just kind of knocked around the department, and, and it became clear to me uh, fairly quickly that the most interesting stuff was going on in Tibetan Buddhism.
0: That's totally fascinating and really inspiring, actually. And it's, um, I know, if I'm not um, mistaken, UVA is also very well known for having a very um, prestigious and very successful Tibetan language program. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Yes.
0: Um, so, So you started Tibetan language training while you were in graduate school
1: yeah I had no background at all before that.
0: that's an, that's an and idea.
1: I've suffered from it I certainly have and having started much later you know it's it's been a real struggle
0: well i I can sympathize with that certainly as is also a late starter um, into the uh, into East Asian studies from the sciences and so forth. oh yeah but yeah. I can also attest as as um, someone who's read the book closely um it's it's excellent and clearly it's been a very successful um, and very fortuitous change of path. so congratulations and, mm. and really um it's an inspiring Story. Mm, thanks. So you open the book in the preface by posing a question that arguably, or so you kind of associate with um, beginning your foray into the kinds of issues that ground the book, and it's it seems like a very simple question, but it's it after you kind of think about it, it's not at all a simple question. And this is the question, how did Tibet become Buddhist, right? I think a lot of us and probably a lot of listeners kind of think about Tibet and Buddhism um, as, as really being um, inextricably related. And what the book really does is sort of is really question the um, historicity or really to question the um, diachronic um, An inviolable connection of these two things in a really productive way. So, how did Tibet become Buddhist? Can, can you talk a little bit about how that question um, shaped this project, um, and or whether it brought you into um, this kind of project at all? What was the role of that kind of question and the way you um, thought about and shaped uh, what eventually became the book?
1: Well, actually, that question didn't occur to me till very late in my research. I think I was first interested in Lama Shang because um, he was sort of a colorful, controversial character. He had an interesting life. He was um, involved in a lot of different areas of Tibetan Buddhism. So I thought, okay, this looks like a really interesting subject. And um, I guess I always regarded him as sort of a minor figure. And I think this is how he's been regarded in Tibetan studies for the most part. I'm you know, kind of interesting, colorful, but um, he was... Pretty much shunned by his his uh, the other people in his uh, or in the Kagyu order, and but I guess it was probably it was probably even after my dissertation was written I started to ask this question: um, How did Tibet become Buddhist? And I, I, I find it's really useful to ask um, obviously stupid questions, and you know I've had experience of, of being in a class. Uh, with a lot of specialists, and there's a non-specialist there who asks a really embarrassing question, but it kind of draws things into focus. So I asked myself this embarrassing question because I was starting to see that um, Lama Shang was not just a colorful figure, um, an eccentric minor figure, but he was actually uh, crucial to the, the process by which Tibet became Buddhist. And it also, you know, it kind of struck me in the middle of my work also that um Tibet has not always been Buddhist. I mean, it, it sounds obvious and any historian will say, Yeah, sure. But it, it really hit home one time. It's like, whoa, imagine a as you say, they're so inextricably connected. A, imagine a Tibet that's not Buddhist. It's just it's a hard thing to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, and speaking of seemingly simple issues, um, so Lama Shang, is that the way you pronounce it?
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah.
0: Okay, so I'm saying, of course, as a Chinese um, specialist here, I'm looking at the, that name and thinking, oh, it's Zhang. So, okay, so Lama uh, that's, Shang that's, and the politics of Kurzhong 12th century Tibet.
1: That's the Hlasa uh, pronunciation. <laughs> In other parts of Tibet, it, it might be Zhang. So, um, it's not really standardized pronunciation.
0: Perfect. Perfect. So this did begin its life as a dissertation. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book? Were there any major changes or major aspects of the work that you had to either reorder, restructure, or rethink in the move from um, dissertation to book?
1: Yeah, I think partly um, asking stupid questions was one way I was um, making the transition from dissertation to book. um, Because I realized that as a book... Well, first I had to cut out a lot of junk like um, literature review and and things like that that wouldn't interest um, someone who bought the book necessarily. But I also wanted to make it a a much tighter focused book. And so I started thinking in terms of these broad questions. And then once I had these broad questions that that sound really silly, uh, when you make them, you can – you can make it more subtle as you go along, but you still have that broad question that is kind of pulling the thing together. And that's what I was looking for kind of like a big motif. Mm-hmm.
0: So the, um, so the central figure of the book is Lama Shang. Now I know that it's Shang.
1: Uh, right.
0: And, and you, we've, um, you've mentioned him and we've mentioned his name. Since he's the main figure of the work and since many listeners might actually, or many readers of the book might not initially be familiar, familiar, familiar with him as a figure, can you mm-hmm. introduce him for our listeners um, and say a little bit about who he was and, and why he's important in Tibetan history? <laughs>
1: Well, he's generally known as uh, a founder of one of the branches of the major schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Usually they say now that there are four. I mean, obviously the history is a little more complicated, but um, the Kagyu, one of the four major orders of Tibetan Buddhism, and traditionally the Kagyu is, is grouped into what they call the four great and the eight lesser, and the four great schools, um, one of which... One of those four great schools was founded by Lama Shang. So he's definitely, he's ordinarily seen as somebody working within the Kagyu tradition. Um, probably not that important a person, but he's, um, there are others who were around at the same time that are better known than him. For instance, um, well, a couple of generations back, Gumpopa and Milarepa. Um, so he's in that same lim- lineage and led the first Karmapa. People are, know the Karmapa lineage because it still survives. First, Karmapa, he was a, a contemporary of. So he was, he was seen as, as part of the Kagyu development during that time.
0: So, one of the really interesting things about Lama Shang that comes out early in the book when you're talking about his life and his background is that sort of he's one of the things that we know about him is that um, he, his early life was marked by periods of what can be described as cruelty. Um, sort of uh, cruel yes. actions. This is really striking, um, and it leads to or rethinking. This leads to a kind of what um, seems to be a kind of important transformation. Can you talk about that early cruelty? Um, not because I think that this ought to mark him as a figure, but because it's so striking in the account of his life um, that we that we see here.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I don't know how much we can take it at face value or not. Really, um, there's a sort of convention in Tibetan hagiography of, um, well, the best known example is Milarepa, of having this sort of narrative trajectory of someone who starts out bad and, and gets to the Dharma and is over to, able to cleanse himself of the bad karma created and become a major figure. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, Lama Shang's biography echoes that of Milarepa, and he, he consciously followed Milarepa in a lot of a lot of what he did. Um, but so that early thing the the cruelty, he, um, and he did things like swallowing fish and, uh, chopping up the rear end off a fly and, and putting a flower in and, and then sending it off flying. And he talks about the you know, sort of the karmic consequences of it, which is like constipation. And I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's very funny. And he's, I mean, he's a very colorful, colorful writer, uh, which is another thing that makes him interesting. You know, but uh, the transition, um, you know, it wasn't like a a flash of of insight that changed his life. It's like he was constantly um, well. First of all, he was known as a magician for the most part, his magical abilities, and he used to engage in, in sort of uh, questionable practices um, involving possibly animal sacrifices because they're talk of bowls of blood. And um, the destruction of enemies, destruction of enemies is the same sort of sorcery that Milarepa was involved in as well. And he was constantly sort of coming back to the Dharma and then backsliding. So that it's a history of of sort of backslides.
0: Now this is actually, I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of magic and sorcery, because this is something that um, from the perspective of, of any of us who are writing books about figures and having to rely on um, sources to reconstruct that biography. And you talk very much about the um, the challenges and the kind of constructiveness of that practice in the book in, I think, really helpful ways. But one of the really notable things is that um, part of his... Uh, or part of the kind of image of this figure and and the history of this figure is this element of magic and sorcery. And the way you treat it in the book is very interesting, right? I mean, you're sort of, um, you have a way of weaving together these accounts of magic and sorcery in a way that is not judgmental, at least from the perspective of a reader. Reading these accounts of his practices of magic and sorcery, the reader, at least from my perspective, is not left with a sense of uh, sort of normative judgment by the author writing about this. So this is a very interesting part of the methodology of the work that I'd, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about. What does the term mean here, sort of magic, um, as it characterizes Lama Zhang's practices or the practices of people he was associated with? And how did you decide to approach the concept the way you did? Because it's not at all a a simplistic issue, right? It's not at all the case that the way you approached it is necessarily the only way you could have, right? Although I think it's very effective. So what what is magic and how did you decide to approach it in this way?
1: I guess I approached it in this way because in the Tibetan tradition, magic and Buddhism are not necessarily separate. They're not seen as opposing in some way. Um, A lot of the Buddhism that came over from India and China and Central Asia uh, was mixed liberally with local, if you want to call it folk culture. Um, there's, There's still, I mean, it's certainly colored the character of the Buddhism that survives in Tibet today. Um, the landscape is populated with spirits and um, there are, are all sorts of rituals that probably are not of Buddhist origin, but they've been incorporated into sort of the Buddhist discourse um, that are basically um, sorcery or, or uh, shamanism ways of dealing with, with um, pesky spirits who are, you know, causing disease and bad luck and things like that. So I think it's really important when you look at, at, at Tibetan Buddhism and probably other forms of Buddhism too. I think we've, we've had this sort of abstracted version of Buddhism, which sees it as, as just kind of a set of ideas or philosophical standpoint and which ignores the way it's, it's rooted in the local cultures and it changes, it, it varies a lot between the different cultures. Um, so I wanted to keep this element of Tibetan, uh, of, of the Tibetan local color and and the way it it, it shaped Buddhism, so Lama Shang it's not even clear w- whether what he's doing is Buddhist or not half of the time and it, Probably this, the question doesn't make that much sense to even ask. He was just doing what people did, and one of the things he was good at. And people in Tibet believed in sorcery. They were they could be Buddhists, but they still believed in in people able to you know create hailstorms and fend off armies, and the, you know these special powers that people had, and destroy enemies of your family. You know the family, the clans were very big, and they were always warring with each other, kind of Hatfield McCoy kinds of things. So. I guess I, I wanted to keep the Buddhism contextualized with um, all of the other uh, ritual and magical things that you see in Tibet, and and I, I, yeah, of course I wanted to be non-judgmental because I wanted it to be integrated into the Buddhism. If that makes any sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You've raised a few issues that we're going to um, certainly talk about, I think, later on in the discussion. So issues of clan and family and lineage and and what that means in this context and how Mm -hmm. that's important to your um, analysis and also the issue of violence, which is also um, very important for this study. Mm -hmm. Before we get there, to kind of set the stage a little bit for what comes later... The book uses Lama Shang as a central figure, um, not just to explore him and different kind of epistemic and um, sort of historical aspects of what it means to understand and to do Tibetan history and the history of Buddhism with, you know, with um, him as a figure, but it also uses him as a figure to explore a key moment in central Tibetan history. And this mm-hmm. is the medieval Buddhist revival known as the Tibetan Renaissance, or the later spread of the teachings. Right. Can you say a Little bit about that moment in Tibetan history, especially for listeners who may not be familiar with um this this period in Tibetan history or maybe Tibetan history at all.
1: Yeah, well, um the second spread is what it's called in the in the traditional history books. Um the first spread was during the time of the Tibetan Empire, where Tibet had a a very large and powerful empire that that controlled much of Central Asia. Um, that actually at one time captured the the Chinese capital of Chang'an and installed their own people for a little while. Um, But so Buddhism is often associated, um, not necessarily very accurately, but it's often associated with the early emperors or the kings of of the early empire. And um, when the empire fell apart, Buddhism... Sort of went underground, or it it became something that was not institutional. It was more at the local level, Uh, again, mixing with this sort of local magicians and sorcerers and and so forth. But this this collapse of the empire and the disappearance of institutional Buddhism was considered a great catastrophe and crisis in Tibet. It's sometimes called the Dark Age, or it's sometimes called the period of fragmentation, or the period of of Tibet falling to pieces. So um, I'm trying to frame this second. Spread of Buddhism in terms of the crisis period beforehand. This uh, of a of a society um, in political pieces, in religious pieces, in cultural. You know, some of the writings from the time uh, evidence a a kind of general malaise, a feeling that that um, we had a golden age, the empire, and it's gone away, and now we've lost our bearings. So the second spread, I became interested in how Tibet which was lying in pieces, at least in people's minds it was, was reunited. So I started wondering about things that are sort of social adhesives, the glue that holds things together. And that's when I started to think of uh, the thing, things like lineage and the creation of, of different sectarian groups, the institutionalization of groups. And here, this is when Lama Shang became crucial in my own mind.
0: And this is really interesting because the the theme or the the kind of the idea of bringing together a whole out of fragments um, it really seems to recur through many many aspects and many chapters of the book in many ways and so I think it becomes a kind of trope um, that we can use to understand not just Lama Chang's life Lama Chang's life but also um, this period of Tibetan history. Okay, so yeah. after this collapse, and, and there's a period, as you say, of kind of consolidation and revival in several respects. And you mentioned two important aspects of this consolidation and revival early, um, early in the book. Both of them have to do with innovation. So you mentioned innovation in social institutions that sort of grew up to support new religious practices, and also innovative mm-hmm. approaches to doctrine and practice. Uh So Lama Shang really fits into this story as a a central agent um, in the historical Mm -hmm. Buddhistization of Tibet, right? And an agent, really, um, of this Renaissance. Yes, he does. So how does previous scholarship um, treat him? So before we kind of get into what we'll talk about for most of this time, which is the particular ways that um, he and his, himself as a figure kind of shaped this consolidation, how have previous authors understood him? And I ask this because you mentioned um, that he's actually quite a controversial figure um, in the literature. So who, who was he, or how would readers who are familiar with the larger literature before coming to your book um, have been familiar with him, and what would they have understood about him?
1: Well, there's a number of ways that he's been contextualized. Um, the, f- the first encounter I had with him um, in Western scholarship was um, as a party to a controversy. Uh, it was more or less a doctrinal controversy. He's always been associated with a sort of philosophical meditation system called Maha Mudra, which means the great seal. And it's complicated, but it, roughly you can think of it, the great seal as, as kind of an... Uh, an unstructured meditation practice which is opposed to sort of the increasingly complex and strenuous tantric practices that were also there. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a scaling back a return to simplicity. Um, in the process Lama Shang makes a number of, of sort of hyperbolic statements about Mahamudra as being uh, the only thing you need to, to reach uh, realization. Uh, forget about uh, accumulating merit, forget about doing rituals, forget about reading texts. All you need is to realize Mahamudra. Um, like I said, given the context, it, you know these are kind of strategic, hyperbolic uh, generalizations. But um, a, a century later, a great Lama named Sakya Pandita, who's been extremely influential in Tibet, particularly in the development of a Tibetan scholarly culture, um, made attacks on a number of proponents of Mahamudra. And um, it was understood, apparently, that Lama Shang was one of the principal ones. And um, I think this kind of set the stage for how he was viewed in the West, because people knew about uh, Sakyapandita uh, before they knew about Lama Shang. And he was hi- highly respected in the West, also as as one of the founding figures of Tibetan scholasticism. But I think because of that attack, Lama Shang first became known as, as sort of a party to this doctrinal controversy um, which is actually a little bit ironic because Shang himself was not at all a scholastic and he, he once uh, quipped I guess it was a quip, I can't tell for sure that um, he was exposed to all the basic Buddhist literature and he retained almost none of it um, so, but this is, again this is his hyperbolic way of uh, you know employing a, a rhetoric for a certain effect but so he um, he was first seen as a proponent of the more extreme forms of Mahamudra that saw it as what they call um, um the single white remedy or or the i can't remember the term the way I translated it but but it's it 's a, a medical metaphor um for the the one thing that cures everything and that's all you need and Mahamudra was seen as that, so I think often he's been um, He's been contextualized as an as a adherent of Mahamudra, and is probably one of those who took it to its most extreme point.
0: Now, as we move into um, the, the body of the study from here, There are three major concepts that undergird your story and that you introduce us to early on in the book, and this really shapes the way um, the rest of the chapters of the book kind of unfold and and, and the the mechanics of them. So I want to just take some time to look at them in turn and to ask you to talk about what they mean in the context of your work and also why or how they've become so important to the way you think about Lama Shang in the context of 12th century Tibet and in Tibetan history. So okay. the first of these that you mentioned is the idea of hegemony mm-hmm. um, and specifically hegemony you say um, as as you're gathering it from the work of Gramsci and others who are articulating developments of Gramsci's work can you talk about that a little bit
1: yeah all of this was also late late in the process um, it was actually the, the one of the readers, when it was becoming a book, asked for a methodology section. Ah. <laughs> and, and but, but that's, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the structure came very late, like I, when I started asking the simple questions. And so the methodology structure, the, the request for a methodological section made me think in these more general terms uh, about what was sort of, what my own theoretical assumptions are that I wasn't saying. And hegemony was one of the most important. I mean, I've been interested in the past when I was a philosopher, when I w- did, you know, sort of cultural studies things. Um, so I was familiar with it, but I, I don't think I was aware until I had to actually articulate a methodology of how important that concept was in, in um, getting an understanding of how a culture in pieces is kind of knit back together.
0: So how why um hegemony can can you say a little bit before we move on to the um to so the other factors about what what that means for you um especially be, for listeners who may not be familiar with Gramsci's work um and why why that particular concept is one that you find helpful in thinking about these phenomena
1: I for me it's helpful because it's it's a very um subtle and non-reductionist Sort of concept, it um, it, it changed uh, with the way a lot of sort of 20th century Western Marxists thought about their theorizing. Took them away from sort of more reductive, deterministic approaches, and and it emphasized the importance of culture in the the achieving of um, of dominance by a particular group. Um, as I mentioned in the book, unfortunately, it's come to in some circles to be almost a synonym for just dominance, as if it were just dominance, and um, so it was seen as kind of a bad thing that that the strong did to the weak. And but hegemony's um, hegemony's Gramsci's uh, notion of hegemony is much more subtle and and um, complicated, and it, it's it's much it's not about um, sort of heavy-handed dominance, but it's more about And it also doesn't just apply to the dominant group. He was much more interested in it as it applied to the subordinate group. And in that case, it referred to how the subordinate group sort of marshaled its cultural resources to pull itself together to oppose um, the dominant group. So, um, and and this is exactly what I saw happening in Tibet, Um, a period of crisis, an attempt to kind of put the culture back together. And I think the concept of hegemony is very well suited to that.
0: Thank you. That's great. So another concept that is crucial um, and that you you mentioned early on, but it also becomes important at repeated points throughout the book is the concept of charisma Mm -hmm. and its power to, again, to create order. And this is, again, um, this phenomenon that we've been talking about, creating order out of fragments. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about um, charisma? What does that mean for you? And how is it important for understanding the context that you're writing about?
1: I think, well, I guess, just basically, charisma. I think of as sort of the authority that attaches to a figure by virtue of um, special powers that he or she can exercise, whether they be, you know, religious powers or um, facility in, in political um, negotiation or whatever it is. So, certain powers that are not that are seen to be extraordinary and that become the basis for the authority. In the case of uh, the Kaguupa. Uh, Suborder. Um, they've always been a, a sort of a um, non scholastic order, or at least their self image is the non scholastic order. There have been a number of great Kagyupa scholastics, but certainly at this time they were considered one of the non scholastic orders. So um, the issue of charisma came up because uh, it, it became clear to me that what held, part of what held the Kagyuba together was. Not necessarily a set of doctrines, not necessarily um, a, a common literature or, or you know, some, an intellectual standpoint, but it was really um, this new role that the Tantric Lama took on. And the Tantric Lama derived his authority from his powers. Um, as Lama Shang had earlier, um, when he was a magician of questionable ethics... Um, there, his power was also a source of authority. So the transition from, from magician to tantric lama, they're still dealing with power. They're still learning to exercise it, and their mastery of of power in that sense is the source of their authority. So it's it's sort of charisma that that acts in the absence of a kind of doctrinal undergirding as the adhesive.
0: Thank you. And in your discussion of charisma and the importance of charisma, you also talk about an importance of um, what seems to me to be one aspect of this power, and that's the concept of the blessing. Um, for understanding Ramashang and his influence in terms of charisma. Can you talk a little bit about um, what is a blessing in this context? Because I think it's important to um, to specify, as you do in the book for listeners, what that means and the fact that it's not what we typically think of colloquially as you know, if we think of, or for most of us, when we think of blessing, we're not thinking about the kind of thing that Lama Shang is doing here under the name of blessing. So, can you, what's a blessing, and how does that fit into this um, bigger picture about charisma, and Lama Shang?
1: Well, there's a very special concept in Tibetan called chinlap, um, which is, is generally translated as blessing in English. Although the term blessing doesn't really cover all of its its nuances. But as I was reading all of this material on Lama Shang, I kept there was just this constant message of receiving blessings from the Lama, receiving blessings from the Lama and its importance as something without which no other religious achievements are possible. Uh, without blessings from the Lama, your meditation won't work. Without blessings from the Lama, you know, your doctrinal ideas will be faulty. And um, so I started looking a little bit more at this. People have written, written uh, quite a bit on the, the idea of, of blessing, um, but it's sometimes seen as almost a kind of physical substance or a physical energy that passes from a great figure, from a Buddha or from a great Lama, and it, it can pass into followers and it can pass into objects so uh, when an object is consecrated it's ba- basically being imbued with the blessings of a great figure like a lama or a buddha and then pilgrims pilgrims will travel long distances to be in the proximity of it and you have to be in the proximity of it and to receive the blessing um a, a number of, there are a number of instances of blessing in uh Lama Shang's life story where it's almost like something that, like being struck by lightning. Um, he, you know, he goes into convulsions. He kind of, his body goes rigid. It's that kind of experience often, uh, connected with his first exposure to one of his root lamas. And this is one of the signs that this is a, this is a good relationship, the, the passing of blessings. Um, but, the concept also has a, a, a longer history and a, a sort of pre Buddhist meaning where it was applied to um, the kings, the great men, uh, the great warriors of the imperial era, and it came to mean something like the power that a king has when uh, when he exercises power and um, even somebody even traced it back to maybe even height, uh, but you know it 's just stature in general, whether it be physical stature or um, or political stature or authority. So, um, this started to sound a lot like charisma to me. And the more I, I mean, I, you can't just identify the two. It doesn't work, obviously. But I found that, that it worked strategically in this particular situation to, to bring together a number of concepts that wouldn't have been together, uh, before that. So, um, yeah, blessings have become kind of like charisma. It's that which passes through. Uh, a tradition Uh, I talked a little I talked a lot about lineages and the formation of traditions one of the things that is passed down in a tradition and that sort of keeps a sense of continuity with the past is that the blessings are passed through the lineage and it's it's a daily uh, ritual in many Tibetan monasteries for instance Um, you begin a, a ceremony by supplicating the past lamas for blessings so it's extremely important in this in this context, I think.
0: Yeah. Now, lineage—the issue of lineage—comes up um, and is developed very fully in the chapter on style. So, lineage mm-hmm. and style here, which brings us to the third of the three um, sort of major issues that you bring up early on in the book, and that's the the issue of style. In particular, you mention. Um, You talk about the idea of a religious style as inspired, at least in part, by particular aspects of the uh, concept of style as developed by historians of science. And so I think Mm -hmm. from the perspective of transdisciplinary scholarship, that in itself um, is very interesting, Uh, just to, to kind of see those motivations across disciplines in the way you're conceptualizing this work. Now, you talk about some of the signature elements of Lama Shang's style, okay, religious style, and we've talked about some of them um, briefly. So you've mentioned um, issues of um, his valuation of experiential knowledge over verbal knowledge. Um, religious practice would be uh, maybe a second element of his style that pr- uh, prioritize meditation and ritual. Um, you talk also about um, two other elements of his style that are really interesting, and I, I've love for you to talk a little bit about one of them in particular. Now, these two elements of his style um, that remain, that you talk about, are the issues of doctrinal deviation. So he's known for um, stylistically having an unusual or extreme tolerance, Mm -hmm. but also, and not unrelated, a kind of a flair, as you put it, for innovation in his literary language, and a mastery of several different genres. Mm -hmm. So it's this... um, it's this last issue or this last feature of his religious style that I'd love to ask you about because it seems so important um, for so many elements of the book. Um, and here, The first thing I want to ask you mm-hmm. is this issue of genre. Um, can you talk about... The issue of genre, as it pertains in this context, so what what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about um, literary genre in this context, and related to that, um, what kinds of literary genres once we understand what that means, was Lama Shang looking in
1: well, I guess the the issue of genre came up for me in uh, asking the question where new genres come from, because um, Shang is often seen as, as one of the innovators, as one of the first autobiographers of, of the Tibetan literary tradition. And as I was trying to deal with this issue, I, I realized that there was a lot of sort of cultural baggage that I was carrying, uh, presuppositions about what an autobiography was, how it was created, how it was <clears throat> circulated, how it was... Um, Red, and so looking at these presuppositions, I I started to ask more general questions about about genres and um, how does they work. So again, I I sort of what what actually helped me was sort of dumbing down my questions, and um, so I asked where do new genres come from, and my my basic answer was sort of new genres come from old genres. This is like like the dumbed-down version. It's sort of a rephrasing of, of Harold Bloom's idea of, of when he's talking about influence, um, where he says that um, poems, uh, like new poems, don't necessarily come from experience. We have this sort of romantic notion of the poet as someone who who has these experiences and feelings and, and coming out of his subjectivity, but Bloom suggests that. Um, new poems come from other old poems, their responses to old poems. And so my my translation of this was sort of, um, oh, genres, particularly ones like autobiography, which you just think of as as kind of spontaneous expressions of subjectivity, actually are very much closely related to the already existing genres. And this is where I got this idea of genre families that are very closely tied together and that show ties that to me seem more important than the sort of formal features that are, are picked out to to distinguish genres um, ordinarily.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, the what kind of genre family was the autobiography part of? Can you because it seems like autobiography is a very important um, example of these genres that he's working in, and, and it's uh, you talk quite a bit about this, and it seems uh, pretty super crucial for the kind of work that Lana Sean was doing. So, can you talk about that um, in the context of this larger idea of genre families?
1: Yeah, well... Um I started with with uh, uh, an early classification of Lama Shang 's work uh, that usually you find <clears throat> when a collected works is put together then um, there are categories into which the works fall um, and the category of um, biography was one category, and everything was thrown thrown into that was um There were no distinctions made between, say, um, straight biographies or hagiographies and um, autobiographies. They were just all in there. And there were also sort of lineage accounts put into that same category of of biographies. And um, I started to wonder why things that seemed very different to me were thrown into the same category. And so I was looking at at, um, both biographies and autobiographies, and... um, it became clear to me that, that some biographies have much more relationship to other genres, such as, um, supplications and, and eulogies than they do with other things thrown into that catch all category of biography. Others, um, seem to have a lot more relationship to, uh Lama's instructions to disciples, you know, with a close relationship, giving meditation and ritual instructions. um, so, the way they worked is, um, <clears throat> in the case of, of supplications and eulogies, again, this idea of supplicating the past lamas for blessings, very much a part of the everyday ritual uh, life of a Tibetan monastery. And, this is a very standard form of the blessings. You usually say a little descriptive phrase about the Lama that you're blessing, and then you you sort of supplicate the Lama for blessings. And it seems like the, the the descriptive part became more and more elaborate until the descriptive part became a sort of biographical sketch of the Lama. And I don't know if this is where the biographies started, but it, there's certainly a strong connection between hagiographies and these prayers of supplication. And my speculation was that maybe at a certain point, the descriptive part of these supplication prayers um, became detached and became a kind of an independent biography of the Lama. Um, In the other case, um, I was talking about autobiography and its connections with um, another genre, which is sort of ritual and meditative instructions from a lama to his disciples. And I found in some of these, some of the language was exactly the same as that in Lama Shang's autobiography. And when I went to the, the actual ritual instructions, I could see that he was giving instructions to his disciples and then interspersed with... Meditation instructions would be little accounts of his life, and so um, it seemed to me that that his autobiography was probably more closely related to these uh, instruction the this, this genre of instructions to disciples, and then the the biographies of so the hagiographies were much more closely related to um, supplications and eulogies.
0: That's so interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, we'll we'll move on from this um, because there's so much else I want to ask you. But I just want to um, highlight for listeners: this is one of many, many ways that I think the book speaks to so many different kinds of issues that may not on the surface. Um, be obvious to somebody looking at the title of the book, um, but issues that are, I think, of of interest and of relevance to people who are not working on um, Buddhism or Tibetan history at all, but who might be interested in um, thinking more creatively about these issues of uh, genre, issues of, you know, how do we understand instructions and rules um, as, part of a, um, as part of literary practice. So I think this is one of many cases in the book, and this is one of the things that makes the book so interesting, um, that um, of, uh, you're developing ideas here that have legs, frankly, that have just, I think, potentially much wider um, implications than simply um, the, the albeit very important case of Lama life and work here okay so okay. Um, <laughs> so moving um, on to um, the way you're treating and the way we're understanding um, Lama Chang's a figure you mentioned or we, we spoke earlier about the the issue of charisma and the mm-hmm. issue that you mentioned that his influence in the book is based on charisma and specifically um, the the, a kind of charisma of the hermit who shuns seclusion in the mountains and comes down from the mountains to assume the role of lord of the teachings. Now, this is a phrase that seems very important, and it's a phrase that listeners may not be familiar with. So, um, first, can you speak a little bit to this title and this idea of lord of the teachings? What is that, and how is that related to um, the way Lama Shang conceptualizes and develops and approaches the idea of the Lama.
1: Well, I think I think Lord of the Teachings may originally have just been an epithet of the Buddha. But in the Tibetan tradition, it came to be a way of characterizing great Lamas as well. So there were a number of other contemporary Lamas who were called Lord of the Teachings. But it seemed to to, to me, in Lama Shang's case, it was especially important um, because it was his way of tying together um, all of the different aspects of his life, the religious, the meditative, the political, the military. It was a way of pulling them all together under one um, sort of one heading.
0: Now you mentioned the military. Um, this is another. Th- this is the other thing that I wanted to ask you about. This one of the things that we talked about earlier, and that indeed comes up in the very title of the book, is the issue of violence, um, and this is associated with that. How ought we understand the role of violence um, in terms of Lama Shang's reputation and his place in the tradition that he was associated with? What, how do we, or in what way, is violence important to the story that you are telling?
1: Well, I guess that issue was one that attracted me to him uh, initially uh, because um, the accounts of him, at least in, in contemporary Western scholarship, saw him as, as a kind of uh, unhinged uh, psychopath who who used sort of tantric justifications to, uh, to justify what he'd done uh, in terms of military conquests and so forth. Um, that issue, aside from making for a a good title, uh, sort of moved a little to the background when I saw that it was much more complicated than that. Um, First of all, it it only meant to me, one one thing it meant to me, first of all, was that Tibetan Buddhism is part of the real world and it's not really surprising. Um, If you're put in a position of rulership, then you have to execute military Responsibilities, so it, it naturally came with uh, Lama Shang becoming uh, sort of the, the the principal political figure in the Lhasa area at a certain time. Um, I think maybe too much is made of the the violence aspect. Um, if you look at at the, the Dalai Lamas, whom everyone seems to revere, uh, particularly like the Fifth Dalai Lama, a lot of violence in there, um, and it was part of his his. Um, it was just sort of part of his his real politic, I guess, if you want to call it. Um, the, and one one reason that this issue of violence became interesting was that it was suggested in a lot of ways that that um, there were tantric justifications for the violence, so that it was it was given kind of a, a, a Buddhist polish, but with this, the implication that it probably wasn't Buddhist at bottom. Um, in tantra, they have uh, something that you call um, fierce activities, which are Activities that a Buddha can can perform, including killing, that a Buddha can perform in order to protect the Dharma, and um, sometimes these were associated with Lama Shang's violence that he used that as a justification. Um, when I was looking more closely at the material, it, I realized that there were there were actually mentions of these fierce activities in Lama Shang's works and the works of his contemporaries, but they were usually negative. Um, there was a time when his supporters, they were backed into a corner uh, on a battlefield, and his cor- his, um, his disciples asked him to uh, evoke some fierce activities, and Lama Shang said, no, we don't do that. We don't operate like that. So that that kind of caused dissonance in me because um, there were other cases where Lama Shang also said, um, no, I don't do these fierce activities. So um, part of what I was trying to deal with was that dissonance between the accounts that, that did attribute to him these these fierce activities and what I saw in the more primary materials. And it, it, as it turned out, a lot of the, the talk of, of fierce tantric activities was much later than Lama Shang's time, um, you know, like three, four or five hundred years after his time. So uh, it could be part of sort of the Kagyu sort of retrospectively building their own lineage story.
0: Now after um, we from the beginning of the book through the the main body of the book and there are chapters devoted to um, a lot of these concepts that we've been talking about very briefly. Um, Lineage and style, autobiography, genre, and textual economies, um, the idea of lord of the teachings, um, and so on and so forth. One of the crucial arguments of the book, and this is um, an argument that's actually elaborated in the conclusion, which brings all of this together, um, is that Lama Shang was an aggressive figure, a military figure, a political figure, who sustained a community through what you call his multi-dimensional mastery, his ability to gather a wide variety of resources and forge them into a unified whole. Again, we have this fragments into wholes whole theme. I want to ask you, as we move to um, the, the last part of our discussion, if you would, um, if you're willing to, to talk a little bit about uh, the three most important aspects of this mastery that you argue for in the book space-time and discourse and symbol. Um, So first, let's talk about space. In what way um, should we understand Ramachang as mastering space?
1: Well, the time that he he, um, first came to power was a time of of great crisis in Lhasa. Um, There had been factional fighting between religious factions that resulted in the burning down of the two holiest sites in Lhasa, the two holiest Buddhist sites, uh, the two temples, the Ramachae and the Jokang. Um, so it was really it was really a time of crisis. His um, his own root lama was called in to sort of mediate the dispute, and he put Lama Shang into in charge at that of, of first of restoring the, the temples that were damaged, and then of of restoring order to the Lhasa area. Um, initially, Shang was reluctant to do that. He had originally come to Lhasa to ask his lama if he could go be a a wandering uh, mendicant. And instead he got, he got stuck with, you know, taking over the reconstruction of Lhasa. Um, I, you know, I've forgotten the original question. <laughs> oh, no,
0: no. It, it, um, if, if you could um, talk a little bit about um, how he mastered space. And so you, you do <clears> mention <throat> as part of this, and um, he constructed uh, statues, roads, and stupas as a way to establish dominion over the space, the sort of issue of reconstruction, of marking <clears throat> sacred space. You also talk in the book about other Aspects of this mastery of space, um, which include also the the concept of sealing territory. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how what is what is sealing territory, and how does that represent a way that um, Lama Shang, uh, mastered space?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> part of what what he saw as his role of um, Lord of the Teachings. Another epithet was. Um, Protector of beings, another epithet of the Buddha that was used a lot for Lama Shang. Um, so he saw his role as Lord of the Teachings as sort of creating a safe space within a, a, a chaotic area, Lhasa, at, at, during this time of the, the great disorders. Part of what he did um, was to, in 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 consolidating his rule, was to create a space that was sort of Selva space. One way he did that was this, this interesting idea of sealing. There were three kinds of sealing they talked about, sealing roads, sealing hills, and sealing mountains. And um, the term seal or chakya in Tibetan is, is an enormously uh, important concept that has a lot of different meanings, as important concepts often do. And so, so for instance, uh, the, a tantric meditator will do certain rituals to seal the space around him or her when doing a meditation practice to protect against this is kind of protective against bad spirits and demons and so forth so i think there's a relationship of this uh, this concept of sealing that lama shang uses also that that suggests creating a protective space so this is a way of, of sort of mastering space it also um Later, it came to have different meanings. It came to mean uh, being associated with outlawing hunting within a region. And um, again, this is just like a small part of the protective role of the Lord of the teachings. So I think it had a more general meaning in Lama Shang's time. It probably included that, but it also included um, protecting the people within that, within that space. And so he had, for instance, um, monks who would accompany travelers, particularly merchants, um, one of the big threats of the disorders in Lhasa was that it, it kind of cut cut Lhasa from this, the economic networks that were so important to its thriving and um, so he, he protected uh, traders and merchants who were traveling who were otherwise afraid to to go into Lhasa and um, so it 's this, this protective function sort of um, demarcating a safe space as protector of beings that I see. Uh, this, um, this spatial, and, and also there's all of the material culture things you mentioned too, like all of the buildings and so forth. Again, this is a way of kind of like, of kind of marking the landscape as, um, as Selba space.
0: Now, he didn't only master space, as you argue, he also mastered time. And you talk about his mastery of time in the context mm. of the idea of a lineage. So can you talk mm. about that um, next for a little bit? How did he master time, and what does that have to do with the idea of a lineage in this case?
1: Well, what I saw as part of the brokenness or the, the fragmentation of Tibet during the uh, this, their dark period or their period of fragmentation was the loss of monastic. Buddhism and um, therefore a loss of connection to the Buddhist past. And a lot of what went on during this uh, Renaissance period was a kind of a remaking of those those broken ties. And part of this remaking was the reconstruction of lineages and eventually the consolidation of lineages into larger units like orders. So eventually what what um, sort of made Tibet Buddhist was this institutionalization of what had been sort of hermit lineages and into large institutions that that sort of um, became important powers in Tibetan society at that time and reshaped it completely eventually.
0: So he mastered time, he mastered space. The third thing that you um, argue that he mastered is discourse or symbol. So now that we understand a little bit more about how he can be understood as having mastered space and time, can you speak a little bit to this last issue of how did Rama Shang master discourse or sort of master symbols in, this, um, in his larger career?
1: Yeah. Well, this came uh, again when I was in the summing up phase and I was looking for simple ways of, of, of putting together uh, the multitude of in- interests I had. I mean, my interests were in lineage. My interests were in genre and I started to see that they were, um, that building up a a kind of literature was a way of, of consolidating a symbolic resources. Uh, Again, it comes from this idea of hegemony, um, hegemony as, as putting together the cultural resources that will hold a community together. And um, one, one book that was especially influential for me in in my take on Gramsci's notion of hegemony was that of a Laclau and Mouffe and their theorizing, which, which, Really talks about it in terms of discourse theory and the way, um, the importance of hegemony as being this way, creating symbolic unities where they didn't exist before. And I think that um, creating new genres, um, creating uh, a body of literature, a style of writing, um, creating texts that establish lineages and so forth is another way by which discourse kind of puts together the pieces and, and relates it both to space and to time.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the um, really cool things that comes out of this, incidentally, for listeners who might be interested in um, sort of visual mapping and have something coming from digital humanities even, um, is that you have a really interesting section earlier in the book where you actually diagram lineage in different ways visually, um, uh-huh. which I think is is a really interesting contribution in itself and, and also um, is really helpful in thinking about Um, what's become, I think, a really important um, aspect of uh, what we might call digital humanities, what we might not, depending on your particular preference. But that Mm -hmm. is the the visualizing relationships and sort of taking relationships as a focus of and an object of study.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's always been sort of my temperament to to see things that way. I'm always drawing myself pictures. And so when I was thinking of, you know, how Tibet became Buddhist, I was picturing a sort of aerial Google map. I don't think Google maps existed, but a kind of aerial map that showed, um, you know, an an area of actual spatial spread of Buddhism. And and that helped me to picture a lot of the the conceptual relationships that I was talking about. And then lineage also um, very dependent on, on, you know, the method of representing it. And I, I talked about this string of pearls method of, of lineage, of, of representing lineage. And it, it, you know, as a straight line. And when I looked at the actual relationships, when I was looking at his lineage, uh, lineage documents, the documents that, that told of his lamas and the teachings received from them, it was a welter of relationships. It, it didn't look anything like a straight line. So I started wondering, well, my first thought, and I've heard other people say this, is, oh, people falsify their history. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized this, this wasn't history at all. It was constructing a lineage. And from the standpoint of modern history, what did 12th century Tibetans know about, really know about 8th century? They didn't, you know, um, but they, always, they had a relationship to their past. And it was through these lineages. And again, lineage is, this, um, is a symbolic construction. And, and which is why it can be a straight line, but it can kind of stand in for that whole array of of relationships to the past uh, as a kind of synecdoche, I guess you, you call it, Nick, um, where one strand of that complicated past will be a way of sort of consolidating the identity of the group. And it's very important. Um, as the sectarian groups grew larger and started becoming more influential in Tibetan society, that they have this, um, an identity and a sense of relationship to their past continuity.
0: And is it before um, the, the last question I'll ask you before we uh, move to, to the closing, because I know we've taken a lot of your time. Um, is it, are, you may, this may not be something that you're, you're interested in or familiar with, but just from your what you were saying just now, it makes me feel like you might be interested in this. Is there um, a discourse right now of this kind of mapping, what we might consider um, under the term digital humanities, right, in Tibetan studies? Um, do you like? Is, is there any kind of? Um, are Are there people working in this? basically, uh, on these kinds of problems in Tibetan studies? And if, if so, or if not, do you see this as a potential growth field for Tibetan studies?
1: Um, I'm not really sure if I see it or not. Um, I guess maybe there's a related development, which is a little more interested in sort of the book history aspect mm-hmm. of, of Tibetan literature, rather than just kind of the great classics Sort of standpoint. Uh, this, uh, and then this, which is related to my notion of textual economies, of looking at text as sort of these material objects that circulate through different spaces that are produced, di- distributed, consumed, and so forth. Um, so I think there's a broader perspective. And I think I'm not sure how it's related to your question or how it relates to um, digital humanities representation, but. In my mind, it does because it's things I drew pictures of also. And, and so it helped me to represent it. Um, but I don't think there's that much actual work, uh, being done in, in, well, I mean, I, there could be a lot of things going on. I don't know anything about, but I basically had to get some biology software to put together these, these things.
0: (laughs) That's fantastic. Okay, well, Carl, there's obviously a ton um, of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to cover. There's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot more we could have talked about. Is there anything else in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to point out, especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance um, to read the book?
1: Um, well, I can't think of anything offhand except that people who haven't had a chance to read the book um, – it only costs $178. This is Brill. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't expect it to see in the windows of, of Barnes & Noble. Um, although I, I, PDFs circulate constantly on the Internet of Brill books, so I'm waiting for that to show up.
0: <laughs> and we do have libraries.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, libraries, yes.
0: <laughs> so, so- well,
1: my own library actually asked me if I would buy one copy because it was so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> or if I was ready if I was willing to donate one of my author copies. And I, I wasn't. I, I you know, I had too many people that I owed favors to and that, that I wanted to have a copy of the book. So this I guess this probably says something about the funding of state universities.
0: Oh. Well, aside from the the cost of the book or the availability, and again um listeners can consult your libraries if you're um if you're not ready to to purchase it but I think it's definitely uh, clearly I feel like it's a book worth reading um so now that the book is out and congratulations, I think it just came out what's mm-hmm. what's next for you what what are you working on now and what project is inspiring you at the moment
1: Well, I've been caught up a lot in in um sort of since I, since I started working at Towson University in the university affairs, like um, a lot of teaching service kinds of obligations, so I haven't really had much chance to get back to my own uh, my own work. But what I did want to do at some point, and I've started working on it a little bit, is um, compile a, a translation of some of Lama Shang's uh, songs of realization. It's a genre called gur in Tibetan. It's very important. Um, And again, as with, um, as with the the genre of autobiography, Gur, um, was just sort of developing during that, during the 12th century at that time. So again, Shang seems to be fairly early in the process. Um, Gur is is most frequently associated with Milarepa, and Lama Shang is like two degrees later. In, in Milarepa's tradition, so he's very close to Milarepa and very influential in shaping that genre. But I, my my thought is actually I'd I'd like to do a like a a book that's more accessible, uh, and there's a sort of in between scholarly and popular, well genre I guess in in books um, that that are sort of aimed at um dharma practitioners or general public people interested in buddhism but also have uh, kind of a solid scholarly understructure that's kind of what i'd like to do with and and do translations of the songs
0: well that sounds great and let's talk after um let's talk again after you've done that because i'd I'd love to read that book too Um, okay carl thank you so much for being with us today it's really been a pleasure and thanks for making the time
1: thanks for having me carla i enjoyed it too
0: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. As always, thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.